This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Barry Jenkins, just three films into his career, is as respected as any writer-director working. His second film, Moonlight, won the Best Picture Academy Award in 2017. His follow-up, If Beale Street Could Talk, has been hailed as another masterpiece. But no matter where Jenkins' career takes him, he'll always remember the key role that San Francisco played in his future as a filmmaker. Jenkins shot his first movie, the micro-budget 2008 film Medicine for Melancholy, during his eight years as a San Francisco resident. Here's Jenkins explaining how phone banking for San Francisco politician Fiona Ma, just elected state treasurer in 2018, was part of a chain of events that helped launch his movie career. There was this campaign out there that was crazy. It was Fiona Ma was running for maybe it was the board of supervisor. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's... and it was and the woman she was running against was like Janet Riley, I believe. Yes. And so I was a phone Clint banker. Riley's. Yeah, so I was a phone banker in, yeah. in that campaign, um, which was, was which was wild. I don't know how I got that job, but again, <laughs> San Francisco story through that. Like, Medicine for Melancholy would not exist without that job because through that job, I met my girlfriend who then broke up with me, who I then wrote this story, Medicine for Melancholy, about. And the guy who hired me and that job became the inspiration for the White Sinai character in Medicine for Melancholy, this guy who's the number two aquarium guy in the whole Bay Area. And what I just love about that time was everything was so connected back then. You know, it was like literally you could go from phone banking to aquarium guy to hanging out at like the cat club to meeting this woman to then writing the story and you could actually go and film it at these places that these things happen. You know, everything was possessable back then. Jenkins came by the big event studio at the Chronicle in late October. It was one of those gorgeous fall days in San Francisco where you start remembering everything you love about the city. He did that very poetically in the second half of the podcast, and we also talk in detail about If Beale Street Could Talk, the first major motion picture adapted from a James Baldwin book. Beale Street features newcomer Kiki Lane as a young African-American woman who works with her family to clear the name of her jailed husband. If Beale Street Could Talk opens on Christmas Day in San Francisco, we're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Jenkins, welcome to the big event. Welcome back to San Francisco. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. I, I noticed, um, I'm sorry, I stalked you on Twitter and I saw you visited a favorite laundromat, which I thought was just about the coolest thing. Uh, I did, I did. I've been on the road for about eight days and I will be for three three more weeks. So yeah, I've got to do a bit of laundry here and there. Do you get a, do you get a few days in San Francisco? Uh, you know, I got here Thursday night, but the schedule was so packed that I didn't get to do much other than laundry and a, a dinner at Bar Agricole. 
Uh-huh. And um, do you have favorite places? I mean, because you were here for, for several years. Um, I do. I do. You know, a lot of those places have changed since, you know, I lived here from, I think, like 2005 to 2013. So, you know, a lot of that stuff is, has changed, you know, like, like everything. But, yeah, it's always nice to be back. And the weather was gorgeous this weekend. Nice. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit more about San Francisco and, and your first film, mm-hmm. feature film, Medicine for Melancholy, was shot here. Um, if Beale Street could talk... We saw it last week, and we were just blown away. I wanted to ask you when you first even conceived this film, and James Baldwin, I don't see a lot of his works. We're in the Chronicle Archive right now, and I dug around, and and there was always talk of making his 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 books into films, but it doesn't happen often. Yeah, it was interesting. There was a, a friend of mine local to the Bay Area, a sound designer named Julia Sherrar, um, uh, we had like lunch one day and she's like, have you ever read If Bill Street Could Talk? And everybody knows I'm a big Baldwin fan, but I hadn't read this particular novel. And so uh, she said, I think you should read it. I think there's a movie in it and I think you should be the one to do it. And people say that to me a lot and it goes in one ear and out the other, but I really trust Julia's opinion. So I read the book, fell in love with it. I was just uh, kind of blown away with how pure the romance is between the two leads, the two young persons, Tish and Fani at the center of the story, and yet Baldwin always wrote with these two distinct voices. There was the essayistic, um, kind of like pro- protest novel, James Baldwin, and there was this very lush, sensual uh, romanticism of his fiction work, and I felt in this book the two were blended. And so this was in the summer of 2013, and it had been five years since my first film, Medicine for Melancholy. I was kind of like in a rut in my career, and I just went off and adapted the book um, without the rights. Um, to it. And then I thought, oh, after I finished, now let me figure out how to get the rights from the James Baldwin estate. That seems super risky, like a huge investment of your time. Were you preparing yourself for disappointment? Um, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't. I didn't really care about making the film or selling the script. You know, there was a point in my life where, like Maxine Waters, I needed to reclaim my time. And so I felt like the process of the writing, that was the reward in and of itself. You know, I had always admired James Baldwin, and I'd never tried to take some of his work, you know, and place it into my voice, into my realm, you know, which is visual storytelling. So I was, wasn't beholden to the result at all. It was just the process of writing it was the joy itself. And I think that's probably why I was able to do it, because there was no pressure. I didn't expect anybody to ever actually consider it. Where physically did you write it? Um, so I took it this trip in the summer of 2013. I wrote Moonlight in Brussels, Belgium. And then uh, once that was finished, I decided to take a train to Berlin. And so I wrote this adaptation in Berlin. Wow. That's a really lush period of, of writing. <laughs> no, you know, as, as someone who admires James Baldwin, you know, the idea of becoming an expat, you know, for six weeks and just focusing on writing these stories that really are about the American experience, um, it just felt right. Is there a point where you reach out to a relative, or, or at what point do you even let the Baldwin estate or family know that you're doing this? So I had met an academic who was a big fan of Medicine for Melancholy, my first film shot here in San Francisco, and I told him, hey, I adapted if Bill Street could talk. And he was like, well, prepare yourself, because it's going to be at least four years before you do anything with it. Um, <laughs> and he was speaking to um, how patient and diligent the Baldwin estate um, has always been with dealing uh, with people adapting or sort of um, writing uh, academic pieces about his work. So he gave me an address to someone at the estate, 
And I think because I adapted the piece without the rights, I think it showed them I have nothing to hide. And so I sent a letter and a hard copy of the script and a copy of my first film, Medicine for Melancholy, and said, hey, this is what I want to do. And thus began a three and a half, four year process of the estate getting to know me and slowly but eventually gaining the rights to the the source material. Are you thinking about that when you're writing it? How would James Baldwin create this film and and thinking about, you know, the the spirit? It's a very cinematic piece already. Yeah, you know, I I was, but only in the sense not not thinking of what would James Baldwin do, Um, although there were times where that was a question I had to ask myself, but it was more that Baldwin hadn't been adapted before, at least in the English language. He had been adapted once, but never in the English language. And I think people watch more than they read these days. You know, I'm sitting in a newspaper room, and I think people are just watching media more than they're reading it these days. And so I felt like this was a wonderful opportunity to introduce people to the work um, of Baldwin. And so because of that, I knew I wanted to make a very faithful adaptation. Were you thinking, uh, just to set the context, it's a young African-American woman uh, I, I'm going to go as spoiler-free as possible, cool, 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 cool. Um, but uh, fighting to to uh, free her her husband mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of family members, and then the greater community becomes involved. Mm-hmm. This was a 1974 book. Were there things about it that, as you read it, you're thinking this really resonates with, I guess, 2013? Yeah, I mean, there was there was so much about it, you know. In the very early days, before I wrote the first draft, there was this idea, you know, should we take the story and update it to 2018, or to 2013, I guess, at the time. The idea being it would be much more fiscally responsible. It would be much more easier to film the movie if we don't have to change everything to to match the period. Um, But then I thought the power um, in the narrative and the power of James Baldwin, how prescient he was, was that so much that happens in the book, you know, published in 1974, is still very much relevant um, to today. And so we very quickly made the choice to allow it to remain um, in the period that it was that it was set. Were there certain things you wanted to amplify, and was there anything that you felt the need to change? Um, I wanted to amplify just the romance between um, the two the two young lovers, you know. Um, I mean, for me personally, I had rarely um, seen this depiction of, like, young, black, innocent, pure um, romance. You know, these two characters um, are soulmates, and they will likely spend the rest of their lives together except for the circumstance that befalls them. So I wanted to lean in and really amplify um, the beauty, the purity, the pureness of um, their love. And then the only thing I really wanted to alter or change um, was the ending of, uh, of the story. Baldwin had this way, and I think when you're reading a book, you've been in the interior life of the characters for so long that you can just sort of just drift out of the narrative, and yet you're still left with this very full feeling. Um, but when you're only watching a movie over the course of ten hours, you need something that's conclusive. And so we altered the ending mm-hmm. of uh, of the story. I won't ask you how. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, the casting of the two leads are, I, I think, that's absolutely crucial. Uh, mm-hmm. Particularly, Tish is such an old soul, mm-hmm. and. Um, how did you go about that, and was that a little bit nerve-wracking? Because I think of so much of this hinges on that. Yeah, it was nerve-wracking. You know, when when I write a screenplay, I very rarely see an actor um, in my head who's the character. I'm hoping an actor will walk through the door and reveal to me who the character is. And so with Tish, I knew we were looking for someone 
who could speak with two voices at once. You know, on screen in the present uh, present day scenes, she's experiencing so, experiencing so many things for the first time. You know, it's her first love. You know, her first sexual experience. You know, she's pregnant for the first time. Just all these things. She's found her soulmate, and those things need to be need to be projected through very wide eyes. And yet, in the voiceover, in the interior voice, she's speaking with a bit of remove from all these things, um, with a bit more of a wizened. Um, almost experience. omnipotent. Almost yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, she's at certain points speaking through the voice of James Baldwin, yeah. and so it was really important to find somebody who had that duality within them. And Kiki Lane just showed up, and right away I just knew this is my Tish. Uh, now, where did you find her? What had she been doing? How many people uh, did you look at? You know, we looked at uh, a couple hundred people. I don't know, three, four hundred people. And there were some other people who were very strong that we considered. Um, and Kiki had done, she had graduated from DePaul, DePaul University. She was doing a lot of theater. She had done like two days on a TV show, uh, Chicago Med or something like that, <laughs> like as a background person. And um, she was very smart about it because when actors send in these audition tapes, you know, the actor who's auditioning is on screen and a friend is often reading the other dialogue off camera. And so Kiki was reading off camera for a friend of hers who had more experience had been in the business who was auditioning for the part that Stefan James ultimately booked um, as Fani. And as she's reading this off-screen dialogue, she realizes, oh, wait, I should audition for this. And so she went to her reps and created a tape and sent it in. And right away, I was like, oh, we need to fly this girl out and have her chemistry read with Stefan James. Yeah, this is a, do you look at the Chicago Med or is that? <laughs> no, I didn't. didn't I didn't. There was a there was a short film she had done by a really great director, yeah. this guy Seath Mann, and so I watched that before we brought her in. Yeah. Um, so many great characters in this. I think of that first scene where she's revealing her pregnancy mm-hmm. to her family mm-hmm. and and his family, and it just builds into a crescendo. Yeah. Um, was that fun to write? Was that a? I, I, that's going to be the scene I remember, and there are so many memorable yeah. scenes up to the ending. But you know, it was you know, I mean, look, that's all intact in the book. So all all praise and all credits, Mr. Baldwin, for having the fun uh, writing that. For me, it was terrifying to film because you know I'm a guy. If you look at my past work, there are maybe two or three scenes where at max three people are speaking. And in this scene, you have like, I think there's like nine characters sitting in a living room, you know, having this big conversation. And so it was terrifying. It's like, how do you do this and keep it cinematic? And also, you know, make it funny when it needs to be funny, you know, and make it serious when it needs to be serious. And um, James Laxton, the cinematographer, and I, we just tried to create as loose and carefree an environment as possible so the actors could feel free to take the words and actually play with them and bring this vitality to um, that sequence. You know, it's one of my favorite stretches of the film as well um, because it's really amazing to see just a group of really strong thespians support each other and play and feed off one another. I, there were no, I didn't feel like there were any, and I want to, if people have any question about seeing this film, go for this scene and then you'll enjoy the whole thing. But mm-hmm. there are characters that are, I don't know, there are no minor characters, but there are characters who I thought I was going to see the rest of the film. Yeah. And are just there for that spot and um, yeah. made an impact that I'm not going to forget. Mm-hmm. We mentioned before you came in, mm-hmm. I was admiring the Billy Preston song that mm-hmm. I won't say where it appears, but it, mm-hmm. it, it was moving to me. And you said that was brought to you. Yeah, it was. It was brought to me by the music supervisor. We had a, a Ray Charles rendition of a song that he performed on Dick Cavett, but we just couldn't clear the rights to it. There was just no way. Um, and then the ending changed anyway. 
and as the ending changed, we started searching for a new piece of music, and uh, the Billy Preston just presented itself, and I realized I just spoiled what you tried not to spoil. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I love it when the people I'm collaborating with um, are so invested in the process that their creativity is activated and they start making suggestions. You know, there's a moment in Medicine for Melancholy that only exists because the the sound recordist made an amazing suggestion, and it became a visual trick. Um, that I never would have thought of, and it came from the sound guy of all tell, people. Tell me what that was, and we'll, we'll so, have everybody go watch Medicine for Melancholy, too. Yeah, so there's a simple scene um, in the bedroom. It's after the carousel scene at the Yerba Buena Gardens. The two characters go back to this flat, and they're sitting in this very typical tenderloin studio that has, like, it's, like, maybe, like, eight feet by eight feet, and there's a mirror to make the space look like it's bigger than it is above the bed, and there's this very simple scene where the one character plays guitar for the other character, but they're wearing these mic packs. And so we were trying to find a way to use the mirror, but the mic pack was getting in the way because you could see it. And the sound guy, as a solution to the mic pack problem, but also as something that would be really lovely, said, oh, but wouldn't it be cool if they, if he got on the bed behind her and they were back to back? And he was like, oh, uh, she's like, oh, I, don't, I can't play with you watching me. Mm-hmm. And so they got on the bed back to back and then the mirror was there, and so we, we were hiding both the packs because they were back-to-back, and using the mirror, we were able to, just like we do in, in If Bill Street Could Talk in certain scenes, instead of an edit, we could go from one face to the mirror, reveal the other face, and then come back to the first face until the characters are joined. And that was something that I didn't think of myself. It was the sound guy making a really, uh, really wonderful suggestion. Well, you have a lot of the same people, uh, your cinematographer mm-hmm. um, and, and your editor, um, but the movies are so different. Yeah. Medicine for Melancholy, I felt almost like there was a gorilla aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Like uh, There was. <laughs> so, so could <laughs> not, we start not, there? Not a lot of permits used in the, in the making of that film. <laughs> Tell me about that. I mean, were you just going yeah. where... How was your location scouting for that film? You know, that movie was designed around my life in San Francisco. So if it was a club or a bar or a cafe I'd been to, you know, you phone in favors. I'd be like, hey, I'm making this little movie. Would you mind if we came to your bar, cafe, or restaurant to shoot a scene from this film? And, you know, that was, look, look, I don't live here now, so I don't know what San Francisco is like now, but that was still in the era where if you were, you know, like a local or if you were a regular, you know, people would take care of you. And so just about everywhere we went, because these were places where I'm, I'm, I'm a repeat business person. So if I like your coffee, I'm going to be there every day. You know, if I like your <laughs> cocktail, I'm going to be there. This is a place I'm going to choose to go as often as I can. And so all these local businesses just, um, you know, they, they never said no. And so there's this great club scene um, in the film that we, uh, that we shot at the knockout. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we didn't give the knockout any money to film there. We just said, hey, what's the slowest night of the week? And they told us the slowest night of the week was. I was like, would you mind if we came there with a the film crew and we will just cover everybody's drinks? And I'll just tell people that they can come and get free drinks on us. You just got to agree to be in the film. And so we had this party at the knockout that was fueled by like $3 shots of very, <laughs> very like bottom, bottom well uh, whiskey. But this lovely sequence came out of it. So that was really how that movie uh, came together, yeah. But not Beale Street. <laughs> no, Beale Street. You know, the, 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 thing about working, the thing about working with all these same collaborators is it's not that, I mean, I'm sure our skills are, are improving, sure. But the way we approach the work isn't changing. It's just the circumstances are changing. You know, 
you know, if Bill Street could talk, um, cost a bit more money uh, than <laughs> Moonlight costs, and Moonlight costs a bit more money than Medicine for Melancholy costs, but we're approaching them all the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, San Francisco, when you come back, what do you do? Are, do you feel connected to the city? Um, you know, this is, of my adult life, this is still the place I've spent the most time. You know, I was in the Bay Area for eight years, six years in San Francisco, two um, in Oakland, and, in, and even when I was living in Oakland, I was still working in San Francisco. You know, I've been in L.A. for six years, you know, bracketed around those eight years. So whenever I, I come back, I do feel this sense of nostalgia, a sense of possession, I, I should say, especially because I think Medicine for Melancholy is almost like a time capsule. You know, mm-hmm. it's like um, this artistic or social document, you know, of a very particular moment in the city's life, or at least of my life in the city. So I do still feel connected to it. And, you know, like uh, I go back to the old haunts, some of which are still there, most of which are not. And I still feel this vibe in the air. Um, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful place um, that still inspires, I think, very good feelings in me. Part of it is you're coming today on the most beautiful day of the year. Gorgeous. It's, oh, my it's goodness. It's that awkward. Describe it. The whole weekend it. has <laughs> been insane. It's like yeah. that that just sun-kissed, like very clear air, green tree. It's like the Indian summer, right? Yeah. It's just so lovely here right now. Um, and, and I just love that it's a city that's an actual city, you know? If you want to go from this neighborhood to that neighborhood, you can walk, you know, or you can bird. Everybody's riding these scooters <laughs> now and all this stuff, but, um, or you can hop on Muni. You know, I legitimately miss the way of life. You know, I think San Francisco is a very humane city in the physical makeup of the city. You know, it engenders person to person contact in a certain way. It's so strange to be here now. When I first got here, we didn't have, we didn't all have these fancy smartphones, you know, um, and now I see people walking with these, like, in their faces so much. And I don't know, it's a, little, it's a bit bittersweet because the city's designed to engender this person-to-person contact. You, you said you were a creature of habit when you were here. Are the things you were a creature of habit with still here? You, you went to the laundromat. <laughs> Some of them. Uh, you know, I went to the laundromat. I did not go by um, any of the coffee shops I used to visit. Um, you know, I used to live around the corner from Bar Agricole, so I went there for dinner. And it was nice to see that that place is... Still the same place. Very lovely people um, working there. You know, I lived in an attic in Noe Valley for like three or two of the eight years that I lived here. I ha- didn't get a chance to go back up to, to Noe Valley uh, this trip. It's just been so busy. An attic. How was that? Was that comfortable? Was it a, one of the comfortable I mean, attics well, in Noe thing, Valley? It's, it's, it's a Noe Valley attic. So, yeah, it was damn comfortable. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's so some things don't change. <laughs> you still remember your Muni lines? Uh, I do. I used to uh, take the 22 quite a bit. Um, and then, of course, I, I guess you don't consider bar at Muni, but I used to take bar quite a bit. And then my first job here was telemarketing. I was working, I was like a phone banker for political campaigns in the sunset of all places. Uh-huh. So I used to take uh, the end Judah quite a bit to go out to the sunset. Have you talked to um, Boots Riley yet about that? Uh, no, 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 no. Boots for, and I, Former the big event guest Boots Riley. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I see his photo on the wall right next to me. Uh, yeah, Boots and I uh, connected at South by Southwest. We both have these films uh, yeah. that are being released by Annapurna. Awesome guy. Bay Area, like, through and through. You know, I still feel like like a guest here. A part of me will always feel like a visitor in a certain way. I mean, eight years is a legit amount of time, but, you know, I'm not born and raised here, so. Would you ever shoot another film here? Um, I would. I mean, it's, um, again, you point the camera in any direction and you're going to have something that's visually stimulating. So I absolutely would. But what that story is, you know, I'm, I'm not sure at this point. 
are there are there things that you learned while you were here that you can just point to that's informed Beale Street? That's something that helped me for Beale Street. I mean, I think because uh, James Laxton, my cinematographer, is born and raised here. You know, we spent a lot of time here together, just like watching things. Like the Pacific Film Archives, I think, was very foundational to my development as a storyteller. Just watching movies um, at that amazing theater, the Castro, the same thing. Um, artistically a very particular thing I I can't really say Um, I will say though that living here really expanded my my social horizons in a certain way you know I can't say that I ever legitimately had a friend who was Asian American before I lived in the Bay Area and while I was here because my first job was phone banking in the sunset you know I developed really close friendships to a lot of folks uh, from that background you know same thing um, with Mexican-Americans. I mean, it's just the city, I can't speak to what it is now. I don't live here, but it was legitimately what you think of as this melting pot or this vision of what this new America um, could be or was possibly becoming. And now, obviously, on this side of, of 2016, you know, all those things are in flux and very different. Phone banking. What, what did you phone bank? Do you remember any of your I, I do. spiel? I was, uh, no, I was, uh, there was this campaign out there that was crazy. It was Fiona Ma was running for maybe it was the board of supervisor. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's and it was and the woman she was running against was like Janet Riley, I believe. Yes. And so I was a phone Clint banker. Riley's. Yeah, wife. so I was a phone banker in, yeah. in that campaign, um, which was, was which was wild. I don't know how I got that job, but again, <laughs> San Francisco's story through that like medicine for melancholy would not exist without that job because through that job, I met my girlfriend who then broke up with me, who I then wrote this story, Medicine for Melancholy, about. And the guy who hired me in that job became the inspiration for the White Sinai character in Medicine for Melancholy, this guy who's the number two aquarium guy in the whole Bay Area. And what I just love about that time was everything was so connected back then. You know, It was like literally you could go from phone banking to aquarium guy to hanging out at like the cat club to meeting this woman to then writing the story and you could actually go and film it at these places that these things happen. You know, everything was possessable back then. Yeah. Or attainable, I should say. You speak so well about San Francisco. I I, uh, I need to be talking about your new movie, too. <laughs> but uh, No, that's all good. I mean, I think, yeah. um, you know, being back here, I've been thinking about it as well. You know, Wyatt uh, Sinak, who plays the main character in that film, uh, came out to see Bill Street at the Apollo last week. And it was the first time, I think, we had been together mm-hmm. um, in that kind of setting in quite a while. And uh, and we both realized that the Baldwin estate gave me the rights to make this film, not because of Moonlight. They gave them to me because of Medicine for Melancholy, because that was the only film I had made at the time when I showed them the script. So um, really lovely how all these things come full circle. So Moonlight, the success, mm-hmm. the immense success of Moonlight, um, does that give you more pressure or does that make things maybe a little bit easier that you can go in a direction and people will trust you to get there? I think it's a little bit of both. I think if, if there's pressure associated with it, it's because of the uh, the model or the path that people who've been in this position before me have followed, which is, you know, you make the small film that does well and then it's like, oh, you must go on to something much bigger now, right? Because how often are you going to get this opportunity? Um, the, the lovely thing about the situation I found myself in was... I wrote Moonlight and If Bill Street Could Talk at the same time. You know, to me, they were companion pieces. And so it was nice to have this crutch I could lean on where it's like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do next. 
I'm going to adapt James Baldwin, you know, because nobody's adapted James Baldwin um, in his native tongue before. And I will be proud to be the first, especially if it helps other people discover the work of James Baldwin. So um, there was a little bit of pressure, but there was also this amazing freedom. And now if if I'm curious about something, I legitimately have the means to explore that curiosity. Um, you know, my career before used to be designed around getting people to say yes, and now it has to be built around being wise enough to very often say no. Have you been watching it with a crowd? And, and uh, You know, it's hard for me, man. It's hard. <laughs> you know, I think these movies are so personal in a certain way. I can't sit in a theater and not just, like, freak out over every single reaction um, somebody has. Um, so I haven't watched this one yet uh, with the public audience since the premiere at Toronto. I didn't watch it there. I didn't even watch it um, at the Apollo. It's just hard, man. And, and it doesn't change the work for me. Um, you know, the film is always going to be the film. So, so far, I just keep myself clear of those things. Well, I, I we're in the archive, Chronicle Archive. I showed you the um, James Baldwin file, and mm-hmm. we have the original review, which I'll be posting online. I don't think the Annapurna people told you, but you get a parting gift on the big event. They, they did not tell me that, no. So... Uh, this is our photo of uh, James wow. Baldwin for you. You get two of them there. Wow. And little added, uh, mm-hmm. little added wrinkle here. Mm-hmm. Um, that photo was actually, if you look on the back, this is lovely. So the photo on the back, that's Joe Rosenthal. Wow. So Joe Rosenthal shot the Iwo Jima, that very mm-hmm. famous Iwo Jima shot where mm-hmm. they're holding up all the flags. Oh yeah, yeah. He yeah. was a World War II photographer who wow. then went and worked for the Chronicle for 35 years. Whoa. So both sides of the lens, there's legends here. Wow. So I wanted to take that with you and wish you the best for the film. Thank you very much, man. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Darling, it's 2 a.m. It's time for closing. The cops, they're all sideways. And I think Aaron's You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Barry Jenkins. This episode was produced by me, Peter Hartlob. Senior producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S. It's the